0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is sponsored by UnityVillage.org. Songwriter Karen Drucker returns to Unity Village with A Woman's Timeout Retreat, September 19th to 22nd. Learn more at UnityVillage.org forward slash events calendar.
3: everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. And guess what? Today, we're very alive because we're vegan. But we're not coming to you live, and I just need to send out a great big thanks to Jeff Comfort at Unity Online Radio, and to both of our guests today. We're going to be speaking with Zoe Weil, who is just the humane education guru of all time. That'll be after the break, and we're going to be talking about yoga with Brian Leaf, who was somebody that you guys liked so much when he was on a couple of years back with his book, Misadventures of a Garden State Yogi. Now, the reason for all this rescheduling and pre-recording is that March 29th, the day that we're scheduled to be live, is my daughter's birthday. Now, I want to actually dedicate today's show. We don't usually do that, but I feel that I want to dedicate this show to parents of young children who are thinking, oh my gosh, give me a minute to myself. Guess what? The time will come when, if your experience is like mine, seeing these children who want to be with you every minute of every day will be as difficult as getting an audience with the Pope. And because that's how it is with my grown up daughter and me, we are pre recording with great gratitude to everyone involved and a nice dedication. To you moms and dads with little bitty ones running around, it's the best time of life. Enjoy, enjoy. And now, to the real purpose of life, at least in my opinion, and that's to figure it all out. Do great good, find out why we're here, and have union with all that is. That is really a definition of yoga. And the book that we're going to be talking about today is The Teacher Appears, 108 Prompts to Power Your Yoga Practice with Brian Leaf, who is the author of 13 books. Oh my gosh, he's been busy. We talked about Misadventures of a Garden State Yogi, My Humble Quest to Heal My Colitis, Calm My ADD, and Find the Key to Happiness, and now The Teacher Appears, which is a little bit different. This one is a journal. Welcome, Brian Leaf.
4: Hey, thanks a lot. Nice to be back.
3: It's wonderful to talk with you. I loved this book. <laughs> there is something about interactive spirituality that that really speaks to me. So, tell us what prompted you to want to do a book in this journal format.
4: I thought you were going to say what prompted you to do a book in this journal format of prompts, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the uh, um, basically, I guess, let's see. So, I wrote Garden State Yogi, which we talked about. And by the way, I have this vague memory, didn't we? It was really funny. Didn't we like book the show but it was a misunderstanding? You thought it was a different book or something, and then when we got to talk about it we had a great time and you said, Well that was great <laughs> because I didn't expect I thought it was a different book or something. It was like three two, three years ago, so I can't remember, but it was something really funny. But we had a great time I remember. Uh, anyway, so so uh, I, I wrote Garden State Yogi and after that I wrote Misadventures of a Parenting Yogi. Um, And those were both narrative memoir books. And then uh, I started writing another book where I did experiments with all kinds of different holistic health and conscious living modalities and wrote about it. And uh, in the middle of that book, I realized that I was off-center. I was out of alignment. I just was – the book was too facetious, and I don't know, I just needed to recenter. So I took some time off, and I just really said, what do I want to do now? And I had seen this book. I don't know if you've seen it, called Wreck This Journal. It's a really cool book on creativity and uh i just when i saw it i fell in love with it i thought wow we need a book like this in yoga and in conscious living so i want to write this like really interactive kind of funny kind of um slightly irreverent but also deeply you know spiritual book that that really engages people and inspires them to take action right then and there and you know uh kind of like break the fourth wall you know just to involve the person in the book plus nowadays I think for a book to be in paper, it's cool if there's a way in which the paper actually matters. Like you use the book itself to have a catch or to color in or <laughs> whatever, you know. And so I wanted that. So that's how this book was born. So and then I and then I reached out to a lot of people that inspire me, a lot of famous yogis in the country and meditation teachers, and asked them to contribute guest prompts, and uh, they mostly did, and it was really exciting.
3: Well, that is exciting. We were talking just before we started the show uh, that I have a cookbook coming in December with J.L. Fields, and we have recipes from, I think, about 70 of our Main Street Vegan Academy graduates, and it's so wonderful to be part of a collaborative effort, but it makes it a lot more complicated. (laughs) There are just so many details. So how was it working with all these amazing people?
4: Well, it was it was great and um, you know is the it was fairly streamlined because the prompts are short and uh, a lot of people would email I was I was really blown away by how generous everybody was and just willing to contribute and eager to uh, it was, you know just to share what they got and it was fun actually the best part for me was it was really fun and kind of a high to facilitate some of these people who have facilitated me, you know, who've Mm -hmm. helped me so much. Because, you know, some of them would say, like, oh, I'd love to, but uh, gosh, I just don't have time or I don't know what I'd say. And I would say to them, you know what, Uh, you're looking at it the wrong way. Like, you don't even need any time because I don't want something that you're going to brainstorm. What I want is who are you most deeply? Like, what is that thing? Because these are all people who are already super famous and successful, and their message is really honed and powerful and energetically carries a lot of, you know, gusto. So I didn't want them to think of something necessarily. I mean, that'd be fine. But I just said, who are you? You know, like, why do 150 people show up to your class every day? Just give me a little nugget from class, just something you've already got, something that's so close you can't even see it. So, you know, I'd facilitate them. I'd say, pretend you're in front of the room. Just start talking. And then they'd say something. I'd say, there it is. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, what, that's what people love about you. That's the power right there. And uh, we put it in the book, and, and that was it.
3: So uh, give us a couple. What are some of the okay. best props?
4: All right, sure. So I'm just going to flip through. Um, let's see. So here's one. This is from uh, Malika Chopra. You know she's uh, Deepak's daughter, and she's great. She started living. Uh, she started Intent.com, and uh, she's had a big impact on people. So first, she quotes the Upanishads. Actually, she says, "You are what your deepest desire is. As your desire is, so is your intention. As your intention is, so is your will. As your will is, so is your deed. As your deed is, so is your destiny." So, in other words, what's your deepest desire is going to lead you to your destiny. So be mindful. (laughs) So that's the Upanishads. And then she, her her question simply is, what is your deepest desire to look at that? Um, So then, you know, there's space for journaling. Um, And then, you know, some are funny, some are serious, some are just questions. Um, Let's see. You know, here's one that's very simple. This is one of the non-guest ones. It says, complete this sentence. I have known for a while now that it is time for me to... and then you fill it in.
3: Oh
5: um, boy! There's
4: another.
3: <laughs>
4: yeah. So so yeah. What's that one for you?
3: Blossom. It's springtime. Nice. And why not? Yeah. The, yeah these yeah. these are fun, and I have to say, I've just marked the book all up. I, I like to get up in the morning and do something with a pen and to have something to write in other than my regular spiral notebook has been very special. So what's the overall theme? Is, is there a road to enlightenment piece here?
4: Um, I guess the overall theme is, um, you know, it's funny, actually, when we write a book, we learn a lot about ourselves, right? You've probably had this experience because it's like you can't hide. You know, you can hide, one can hide behind a 1,000-word piece. You can fake it. But a whole book, you can't fake it. And so you, it's like doing a PhD in yourself. You sort of discover who you really are because your inner message, your real message for the world, your kind of dharma and your mission statement kind of comes out. So for me, I guess, I guess what the book really is about is the deeper yoga. You know, it's playful. It's funny. It makes people laugh. It makes people get serious. It makes people think about your family, your relationships. You know, it's like a sort of the book is like an hour of psychotherapy. But at its deepest, the book really, I would say, is trying to bring people to true yoga. And true yoga, of course, is not just a handstand or a headstand. True yoga is coming in contact with your heart and bringing your heart into the way you live in the world. And I would say that's the aim of the book, you know, is to see past the handstand, to use the handstand, but see past it into true yoga, which is tapping into your heart, tapping into your inner wisdom, tapping into your truth and bringing that, you know, authentically into the world.
3: Oh, my goodness. You said so many beautiful things. When I can um, keep up with a guest who says something exquisite, I try to write that down to put in our show notes at MainStreetVegan.net, and I just got four of them from you. But I think my favorite is writing a book is doing a Ph.D. on yourself. That's a great tweet. So if you want to find Brian on Twitter saying wonderful things like this. He is there at Brian Leaf, and the website for this lovely book is the teacher, no, no the, scratch the, www.teacherappears.net. So tell us, uh, Brian, as our time is winding down about your life as a yogi. You're a dad, you're a writer, in some ways you're a regular guy, and yet you're extraordinary because you're using this life for something very purposeful. Tell us your day-to-day.
4: My day-to-day life? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you know, again, actually, as an author, that's kind of an interesting one. I feel like being an author is like being a farmer or something. You know, there's like, there's like these different phases of the year, and uh, it's kind of interesting. It's a little challenging sometimes to have so much variety, you know, um, as opposed to a daily you know, really a routine that's predictable. So, um, you know, part of the year, let's say, I'll spend writing the book. And that day-to-day, I love writing the book because to me, writing the book is an invitation to go as deep as I can, to just really, you know, meditate, tune in, and just bring, you know, try to tap something, channel something, just, just achieve a moment of clarity and then bring that to the page. So I go to, there's a tea shop in town here called Dobra. Uh, people might know them from other places in the country, and it 's just this glorious little Zen spot. Um, you sit on the floor and drink good tea, the best tea and I love that place, and you know it's all uh, just environmentally crafted and it's it 's wonderful. So I go there and I write um, so that phase just feeds my soul and then the, the the phase of book launch is a little more challenging actually it 's harder for me to stay centered because that 's the part where you know I have to help the publisher. Um, reach out to a million people and answer questions and, and knock on doors, so to speak, and and uh, put it out there. And there's a lot of emails and a lot of computer time. It's harder for me to stay in my heart with that one. And it's also easier to go to fear by accident. You know, is the book going to do well? Not ego so much. I mean, of course, there's that, but I'm, I'm, I don't get too wrapped up in that. More fear for me, I got to say. I'll just get afraid. Is it going to do well? Is it going to make money? Am I going to be able to write another book? So I I really, that part's unpleasant and, of course, you know, a terrific growth opportunity because when I can really stay in my heart in that phase, that'll be an accomplishment. Um, And then there's post-book launch, which is a lot of writers feel like a a bit of a depression comes in, like a postpartum depression where you're like, who am I without that? What do do I do now? What do I do? And, And that's the time when I try to really just say, you know what, I'm not as busy right now going to play with my kids more. reminds me of what you opened the show with, you know. Um, I'm just going to, you know, I don't have to busy myself if there's nothing to do. I'm just going to build a snow, uh, a snow fort in the backyard, which we have a foot and a half of snow right now here. Um, so, but, yeah, so those are some of the days, to, the day-to-day, I guess.
3: Snow fort yoga.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you've ever built a snow fort, you know, it's really something special. And one of, my, uh, my ki- one of my sons was in kindergarten. The teacher talked about how little kids like to build these little shelters, you know, forts, and to squeeze into them, and it's something really soothing about it to them to experience their body and how big it is. And, and I love that concept, and so I, just, I see it with kids. They love it, and I love doing it with them. You know, we, we'll build a little snow igloo, and then we squeeze into it. Sometimes I make us a little snack, and we have a snack inside it. That's the best. But I to tell you you a funny story that totally just occurred to me. Um, Okay, last minute. uh, Last minute, in the follow-up book to Teacher Appears, I've got um, Alicia Silverstone and uh, John Robbins talking about veganism in the book. And Alicia Silverstone has been very generous. She's uh, helped me out in a few of my books. She reviewed one of my books. And it was really funny because at the end of the review, she said, I'm not a vegan uh, I don't know how I got on this show somehow. I snuck on, but uh, she said in the end of the in the review, she said, "You know, this is a great book. It's laugh out loud. You're going to love it." I just wish Brian and his family would become vegan. I really feel like their lives would benefit, and they would feel, you know, much more spiritual. And I sort of challenged them to do it. And it was funny because my wife got mad. <laughs> it's really funny. It's the only time she's ever been bothered by a uh, a review of one of my books.
3: Well, that's a whole other show, you know, and, <laughs> and I will get letters, too, because people are going to say you had on somebody who wasn't vegan. Um, oh, boy. So, there we I, all did go. I, <laughs> did I spill
4: the beer? Oh, no. So you, sorry.
3: You, you did, and honestly, you know, I didn't know that, but that's okay. You write darn good books, and uh, and you make for very nice conversation. So, read the book, <laughs> The Teacher Appears, and yes... Brian, go vegan. And now your wife can be mad at me too. (laughs) Thanks so much for being with us and everybody else. Stay with us. We're going to bring on Zoe Weil and talk about education that is oh so humane.
1: As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now.
2: What if you could experience vibrant health? amazon.com or your favorite bookseller
0: Don't think about
4: it. Let, it let it unfold
2: When you truly understand the laws of the universe and live a life based on these profound and unwavering truths then your dream life starts today no more waiting no more wandering If you're ready to let go of the striving and move into the allowing, you are ready for everyday attraction on Unity Online Radio. We study the teaching of Abraham given to us by beautiful Esther Hicks so we can release confusion for clarity, exchange struggle for serenity, and have the time of our lives today. Join host Ray Zander every Friday at noon Central Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Unity Online Radio for Everyday Attraction, where the law of attraction gets real.
3: Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan program. And guess what? Our next guest is guaranteed vegan. That was so interesting. I'd love to hear from you what you think about things like that. You know, it's it's really funny that we're what, 97% of uh, not of the population? <laughs> we're two and a half, three percent are vegans. So most people aren't. And you know what? I've learned a lot from people who aren't, and I hope that uh, they can learn something from us, too. I think specifically about Deepak Chopra. His name came up in that interview. And, oh, my gosh, I've learned so much from Deepak Chopra in my lifetime and learned recently that he is just about vegan. So, you know, sometimes it takes what it takes, and uh, it's wonderful to be in this world with so many good people. Seeking a Better Way, and I am very, very honored to be bringing on someone who is not only seeking a better way, but sharing that better way through probably the most important thing there is, and that is educating young people. Zoe Weil is president of the Institute for Humane Education, that's humaneeducation.org, where she created the first graduate programs in humane education, like in human rights, animal protection, and environmental preservation. She's given six TEDx talks and is the author of seven books, including Nautilus Silver Medal Winner, Most Good, Least Harm, A Simple Principle for a Better World and Meaningful Life, and her most recent book, The World Becomes What We Teach. Educating a generation of solutionaries, which offers a blueprint for transforming education so that students can learn how to create a just, healthy, and humane world for all. Welcome, Zoe Weil. Thank you, Victoria. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you on. You've been on my list for what my grandmother would have called a month of Sundays, and I'm so happy that uh, we're having this opportunity. So uh, start with us a little bit from the beginning. What's your vegan story, and how did uh, education become part of it?
5: So, you know, my vegan story unfolded over time. I stopped eating mammals and birds in 1981. And then it took me until 1988 to stop eating sea animals as well, and then I quickly got it about everything, and in 1989, I I became vegan, and I remember going out for my last bagel and cream cheese in Washington, D.C., after an animal rights conference, and I ate it very slowly, knowing it would be my last one. But, of course, it wasn't my last one because now, now there are all these great <laughs> vegan cream cheeses. But back then, it definitely was. It felt like my last one, and it was for a long time. And back then, when I was thinking about the ways that I could make a difference, I, I you know, thought that the only way to be an activist was by protesting things and writing letters to legislators and to company executives. And so I did those things, and I remember um, one of my first actions when I was leafleting in Philadelphia, and, um, you know, people would sneer at me as they walked by, sometimes somebody would take a leaflet, and then, you know, 100 feet later, they would just drop it on the ground, they were littering, and it would frustrate me so much, and I I just thought, if this is the only way to make change, I'm not going to last. And I was looking, I was in graduate school, I was looking for a summer job, and I found a program at the University of Pennsylvania that offered week-long courses to middle school students. And so I pitched five courses to the director. She said yes to all of them. And one of them was a course on animal issues, and one of them was a course on environmental issues. And I watched in amazement as these kids in these classes were transformed over the course of a week. And in one case, a boy was transformed overnight. So I uh, taught about product testing on animals, and that's, I'm sure that your listeners know, when things like oven cleaner and and soaps and makeup are smeared onto the abraded skin of an animal or force-fed to them in quantities that kill or or put into their eyes. And this one boy in the class, he was 12 years old, he went home and he made his own homemade leaflets. And this was in 1987. So he hand-wrote them. He didn't have a personal computer. He came into class the next day, and he said, do you mind if I hand them out? And I thought he meant he wanted to hand them out to his fellow classmates. But no, he wanted to hand them out on the street. So while the rest of us were having lunch, he was on a Philadelphia street corner handing out his leaflets. He'd become an activist overnight. And Many of the kids in uh, those courses, those first courses, went on to do incredible work and start a Philadelphia area-wide student group and win awards for their work. And so I watched as their lives were transformed, and it transformed my life. And that's when I realized that there was a name for what I was doing, and it was called Humane Education. And that was the beginning of my career doing this work 30 years ago.
3: Oh, what a beautiful history. So, when working with children, and and I have not taught children, but I raised a vegan child, and it crossed my mind more than once during that period, gosh, this kid knows a lot. And I don't mean, oh, my kid is smart. I mean, she knew a lot of the cruelty and suffering that goes on in this world that most children are shielded from. So do you ever hear, shouldn't kids just be kids? Why why are we charging them with solving the problems of the world created by previous generations?
5: I do hear that, and and I've thought about it a lot because, you know, the last thing that I want to do is traumatize kids. And I think it's really, really important to share information with young people only in age-appropriate ways because we truly can traumatize them. But here's the thing, just like your daughter knew about these issues, so do kids today. And in fact, uh, I'll tell you a story. Uh, a few years ago, I was invited to speak at a middle school, and this was a school, um, a progressive school in Connecticut, and I was speaking to the 5th and 6th graders first, and I asked them to share with me what they thought were the biggest problems in the world. And they filled up an entire whiteboard with problems that were very similar to ones that adults would name, including one kid mentioning sex trafficking. And um, after the whiteboard was completely filled, I asked them to raise their hands if they could imagine us solving these problems that they'd just named. And of the 45 kids in that class, only a handful raised their hands that they could even imagine us solving these problems. And that was such a stunning moment. I mean, I've been a humane educator for an awfully long time, and sometimes I encounter cynicism and apathy among, you know, uh, high school students. But middle schoolers, they usually have fire on the belly, and they do not feel cynical or apathetic yet. So I was really shocked. And I stopped everything. <laughs> and I did a guided visualization with them where I asked them to close their eyes and to imagine that they were very old and approaching the end of a very long and very well-lived life. And they lived on a very different planet, one in which there hadn't been a war in decades, one in which we treated each other and other species with respect and compassion, one in which the air and the water and the land were all clean and, and nobody went to bed hungry because they didn't have a choice. And after painting this picture of this very different world and their future, I asked them to imagine a child coming up and joining them and talking to them, and that this, I, I asked them to imagine that this child had lots of questions for them, and then finally asked this question, what role did you play in helping to bring about this better world? So while I was letting the students uh, contemplate this question with their eyes closed, I asked them to raise their hands if now they could imagine us solving the problems that they had listed earlier. And this time the ratio completely reversed and 40 hands went up in the air. And that's when I realized that, you know, as long as children are not themselves, you know, hungry and oppressed and suffering, that that cynicism, that hopelessness doesn't go very deep and it's, it's easily transformed. And this past October, I was, keynoting a teacher's conference in in Mexico, in Guadalajara, and the day before the conference, I was invited to come visit the American School of Guadalajara, which is a, a similar demographic to this Connecticut school where I had spoken, and they happened to ask me to come talk to the fifth graders, so I walked into the classroom with the fifth graders, and I asked them if they thought that we could solve the problems in the world, and every single hand went up that they, they absolutely believed that we could solve the problems in the world. And what was the difference between those Connecticut fifth graders and these Mexican fifth graders? Well, the difference was that in that Mexican school, those children were learning from their teacher about the problems in the world, and they were engaged in solving them. So the difference was that these weren't abstract things that the kids were hearing about but not doing anything about. These were real things that the kids learned every day that they could make a difference and help solve these problems. And so to answer your question in this very long-winded way, if we fail to teach young people about the challenges we face in the world, if we fail to expose them to ways to end suffering and cruelty, then we're really setting them up not only for you know, graduating into a worse world, but also to feeling that it's hopeless. So that's why humane education is so critically important for the children themselves, not just for the world, but for the children themselves.
3: That makes so much sense, especially in light of the distractions that we're offered Perhaps a few more are offered to young people, but our whole society between reality TV and celebrities' love lives and all this chatter, that it's really hard to focus on what's important in our own lives and for the world.
5: I think you're right. and. And then if you contrast all of that interesting stuff, even if it's chatter, right, it it engages people, if you contrast that with a lot of what happens during the school day, which, you know, a lot of kids are bored. I mean, I was bored in school. And so by not making schooling truly relevant and real, you know, where the problems that they have to address and solve in school, let's let them be real problems, not not fake problems. And when students get to learn about real-world issues in school, school comes alive. So they learn better. They become more numerate and literate as a matter of course. They're engaged. They're empowered. They gain real-life skills, skills that will help them in their future. And at the same time, they're solving these problems.
3: That is so exciting. And you're certainly a woman after my own heart, I have a great interest in education and actually ended up homeschooling my daughter because I simply at that time was not able to find an educational program that satisfied me. Plus, we had the complication of my being a single mom and I needed her to be able to travel with me. So education was hanging out with John Robbins at conferences and meeting the Dalai Lama and... (laughs) traveling the world and it, it's just it was really one of the greatest adventures of my life and i certainly hope of my daughter's life and you have now this really exquisite little book the world becomes what we teach so why this tell us the gist of this wonderful book about education
5: well um I've been, as I said, a humane educator for an awfully long time. And my vision has been, you know, a humane educator in every school and every teacher a humane educator. And by that, I meant that humane education would be incorporated into the existing subjects and that there would be somebody who would teach about interconnected issues related to people, animals, and the environment in every school but schooling has changed quite a bit and everything's getting cut there's no you know there's no chance right now that schools are going to start hiring humane educators and it really made me reflect like okay how do we really integrate this into the school system so that it's not an add on it's not What I started to do in the early years of my career, which is be a guest speaker in schools and and offer free programs to schools, I didn't want that. I wanted this to be integrated. And it suddenly occurred to me that, you know, what I really wanted was I really wanted the term humane education to become obsolete because education would be humane education, that that would simply be part and parcel of what's taught every single day in school. And, and when I define humane education, it's education not only about these interconnected issues of human rights and environmental preservation and animal protection, but it's education that prepares young people to solve the challenges that we face in the world, to be what I call solutionaries for a better world, who can address the root causes of problems and come up with solutions that don't harm one group while helping another, which is so typical in the way we solve problems. So I wrote this book because I really wanted to provide a vision for what education itself could be. And interestingly, I, I in the introduction, I talk about myself as a humane educator, and then I never use the term again. Because it's, this is really about transforming education so that it's solutions-focused, It's real-world focused, and so that young people in the course of becoming literate and numerate and understanding the scientific method are solving real-world problems, making a difference, preparing for their own future. It's such a win-win-win, and I think there's a fourth win in there. So if we have education like this, this is a win for kids because they're going to want to learn all of these different things, and they will become more proficient in terms of the skills they need, and they will contribute to a better world, which feels really good, and they will be more desirable uh, by employers and colleges. So it's a win for the kids. It's a win for the teachers because they're going to have really engaged students, and they're going to have a more interesting curriculum for themselves. It's a win for the entire educational system if we shift things because right now you know we hear so many problems in education and so many difficulties and if education were really this enlivened and meaningful and and purposeful it would be a win for the educational system and then the fourth win of course is for the world because when young people are learning about these issues and they're learning that when you come up with a solution it has to be good to everyone including animals who are usually left out of the equation
3: then the world benefits. That's why I wrote the book. Uh, Well, I'm so glad that you did. And the timing couldn't be better. I'm thinking that even technology is going to be so helpful in this because we don't really have to carry around as many facts as we once did. Facts are easy to get, but how to solve problems, that's a tough one. So, Zoe, I know that you are not by a long shot the only person out there who is trying to reform education. What are other people wanting and what are they leaving out? And I know you're going to tell me animals, but <laughs> tell me what else they're leaving out. <laughs> well, much more than,
5: than animals and the environment and human rights. I mean, what's so much of the focus on educational reform is on increasing literacy and numeracy that is only measured through these standardized test scores. So when that becomes your holy grail, is to just get test scores up, you're not going to be focused on problem-solving, critical thinking, creative thinking, strategic thinking, systems thinking, all of these much more complex issues. And so I think the real problem to me, is that we're, we're addressing the wrong question. We need to really be asking, what is the purpose of schooling? Not just how do we, you know, have better math scores, but what is the very purpose of schooling? And I believe that it should be to educate solutionaries, young people who have the knowledge and the skills and the motivation to solve the problems we face. And so I think fundamentally, this is a very different approach. The reality is, that when young people, when they do address these issues, when they do become better critical and creative and systems thinkers, it requires in the process that they become much better researchers, much better readers and writers and communicators, and um, gain statistical skills and other math skills. So, in fact, it helps them gain those things that everybody's focused on, but in a much more realistic and productive
3: way. And enjoyable. I mean, I yeah. know that kids love doing what's real. Now let's yeah. let's play store, <laughs> let's do something real. So how are you doing with this? And how are teachers getting the training that they need to implement these ideas? And oh my gosh, I'm asking you a triple question. I apologize, but this is so interesting. How can they get around the system? My understanding is that teachers don't have nearly the freedom that they once did.
5: They're all great questions, and they're all interrelated, so I consider them parts one, two, and three and not separate. <laughs> so, <laughs> you. um You know, I, I think that things are really, really hard for teachers. Um, teaching can be, sadly, demoralizing, um, and teachers don't... Receive the respect or the compensation that would I consider to perhaps be the most important job in the world, um, uh, you know, they should get that. And so, you know, hats off to teachers and for those who stick in, and stay in this profession despite, you know, um, a, the direction that, that it's been heading. And uh, what we are doing at the Institute for Humane Education is we have created a solutionary program for schools to use. And so we are in the second year of piloting this program, and we are currently working with six schools in our home state of Maine. And the teachers who are conducting this solutionary program are bringing this kind of education that I've described into their classrooms. And we're working with three middle schools and three high schools, with teachers who are in social studies, and language arts and in science, and they are incorporating this solution focused education right into their curriculum. So we now the solutionary program can it can be offered as an after school program. It can be done in communities and with homeschooling families. It can be an elective. And all of those ways are easier than the way that we're piloting it, which is how can it fit directly into the required curriculum in public schools? So that's what we're testing right now, and we've got these fantastic teachers who are working with us to do just this, to incorporate this education into the public school curriculum. And on June 1st, we're going to have a solutionary summit in which the 375 kids at these six different schools Uh, they will be presenting their solutions to the problems they have addressed through their curriculum. And we're really excited about it. And uh, if anybody wants to um, learn more, they can learn more on our website, which you already gave, humaneeducation.org. And um, we are amassing uh, groups of, of teachers and schools who will be interested in doing this in the future and so we're demonstrating it now we're going to expand it from these schools and we're also actually with a school working with a school in New York City as well and um, we are we are working on a guidebook and webinars and professional development summer institute as I said we have a graduate program or you mentioned that in the introduction and it's an online graduate program through Valparaiso University so we have people in our graduate program from around the world and they are learning how to do this. So, And it's not just for teachers. About half of the people in our graduate program are classroom teachers, and the other half are, are non traditional educators or people who want to do education. So there are many, many ways that we can help people and train people to do this kind of solutionary work.
3: This is so exciting. And I know also, Zoe, that you have a different idea about the purpose of schooling from that in the mission statement of the U.S. Department of Education. And you quote that in your book, and it says, to promote student achievement and preparation for global competitiveness, dot, 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 and there's more. And that global competitiveness jumped out at me because it seems that a lot of our problems stem from competitiveness, and yet cooperation isn't necessarily popular, Yes. (laughs)
5: Yes. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. When I, um, you know, I've been talking about this sort of buzz phrase in education that we all hear about how, you know, our students need to be able to compete in the global economy. And it was even part of my one-woman show. And And I hadn't realized that it was actually the mission of the United States Department of Education until I looked it up. And I just thought it was, you know, something politicians said or something that, you know, the media said, but I didn't realize it was the actual mission statement, which, of course, it is. And, you know, there's no question that human beings are competitive. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that there's anything wrong with being competitive. I think the problem is when we turn education into a competition. And um, so just to give you an example of how we are looking at the – solutionary program and its relationship to sort of competition is we our, our goal is that students work in teams, that they collaborate to solve a problem. And then they, you know, they are, are going to be evaluated on their, their problem solving abilities and their solutions. And they're evaluated not on a, you know, uh, ABC, Uh, DF scale, but on, you know, is it an emerging solution that you've developed, or is it developing, or is it proficient, or better yet, is it exemplary? And those students who who develop the really proficient and exemplary solutions, they are going to be the ones who present at Solutionary Summits, and the ones that are really, really great, even though there's no trophy involved here, even though, you know, it's not a competition in the traditional sense. At Solutionary Summits, our vision is that they not only have the school community in the audience, but the audience also has legislators and media and investors. And so the best ideas, they're going to be the ones that get shared. They're going to be shared by the media. Investors are going to invest in them. And politicians are going to take some good ideas and create legislation. And that is real-world competition, right? So that's not just you know, competing uh, for the sake of a grade or competing so that you can get, um, you know, into uh, the best college and then get the best job. This is the competition of the best ideas for the best and brightest future, which I think is a legitimate way of competing, and it's not really a competition. It's do your best to make a difference and and know that, that when you do that, the really great ideas will bread and make a difference and that is that is um authentic right so it's not some just competition for a prize
3: i love that you have me all excited you make me want to (laughs) go to school well i guess i have a school i have main street vegan academy we train adults which is also exciting because i think whenever any of us learn something we're tapping into that wonderful, youthful part of ourselves that wants to know more so we can do more. So, Zoe, just in our last minute here, what's your word for our listeners?
5: Become a solutionary yourself. And by that I mean consider what issues are most important to you. What are you good at? And what do you love to do? And find the place where the answers to those three questions meet. And then do your research and consider the most strategic ways to make a difference that do the most good and the least harm for everyone, for people, for animals, and for the environment. Because every one of us can be a solutionary, so I believe we need to educate a generation of solutionaries and I believe that everybody needs to um, access their inner solutionary and I do hope people will visit our website whether they're educators or not and learn more about what we're doing and follow us on Facebook and all that good stuff
3: Absolutely. So it is HumaneEducation.org, uh, Humane Education on Facebook and Twitter. I'll put all of that and a couple of astonishingly beautiful quotations that, that I heard from Zoe Wild today on our show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Just click on Podcasts, you'll get a drop-down, and you can read those show notes and uh, also have links to Zo's wonderful books Thank you so very much for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you a whole lot more for all you were doing in the world, Zoe Weil. To everyone who listened, thank you too. God bless you. Eat your veggies.
2: Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey.
0: Inspiration only takes a moment. Consider these inspirational thoughts from the Quest for Prayer from Unity House Books. Holding a special, loving thought for other people benefits us as much as it benefits them. In fact, in some ways, even more so. Consider, for example, what happens when you wash your car with a hose. What gets clean first? The inside of the hose, of course because the water must rush through the hose before it can clean the car. So it is when we hold loving thoughts for someone. As those loving thoughts rush through us, they bless us first. It is a win-win situation.
2: This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. Is
6: there a difference between the spiritual teachings you know and how you live your life? Does your day-to-day experience reflect what you truly value? Are you ready to receive your life and live the gift that you are? Join Janice Campbell, licensed Unity teacher, author, and coach each week
0: Inspiration only takes a moment. Consider these inspirational thoughts from the Quest for Prayer from Unity House Books. Holding a special, loving thought for other people benefits us as much as it benefits them. In fact, in some ways, even more so. Consider, for example, what happens when you wash your car with a hose. What gets clean first? The inside of the hose, of course because the water must rush through the hose before it can clean the car. So it is when we hold loving thoughts for someone. As those loving thoughts rush through us, they bless us first. It is a win-win situation.
2: This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity.
6: Talk with Janice live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Central on Receive Your Life, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
1: I will leave this world as it is. The world is full of voices, advertising, television,
0: Inspiration only takes a moment. Consider these inspirational thoughts from the Quest for Prayer from Unity House Books. Holding a special, loving thought for other people benefits us as much as it benefits them. In fact, in some ways, even more so. Consider, for example, what happens when you wash your car with a hose. What gets clean first? The inside of the hose, of course because the water must rush through the hose before it can clean the car. So it is when we hold loving thoughts for someone. As those loving thoughts rush through us, they bless us first. It is a win-win situation.
2: This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity.
4: Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patris and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium and motivational speaker. I know that feeling and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.